Welcome to the podcast series. Today, uh, following our earlier conversation on land market, I'm going to discuss with Mr. Fatak about the Machmaline planning tool, Flow Space Index or FSI as it's well known. FSI remains as the most debated issue and a conundrum. No one is better placed than Mr. Fatak to explain how it has come to occupy a central role in planning and its uh, various avatars. In this podcast, uh, we are going to particularly ask him about how FSI is transformed from being a physical planning tool to a complex physical tool and what it means for urban planning. Though his insights and arguments are drawn from his decades of rich experience and a close study of Mumbai, I'm sure his points are bound to resonate with uh, planners across various places. Uh, welcome again, Mr. Fatak. Uh, thanks for joining. Today, I wish to ask you your views about uh, FSI's recent avatar as a complex physical tool. Um, how has this transformation happened? Uh, um, maybe before you get there, uh, can I ask you to give us an overview of about how FSI has come to occupy a central role in planning Indian cities, particularly uh, Mumbai? Thank you, Dr. Srivatsan. I'm happy to do this podcast series, which is in a way a sequel to the earlier one on land market. FSI was first introduced in Mumbai in the Draft Development Control Regulations or DCRs in 1964 and then formalized when DCRs were sanctioned in 1967. Prior to 1964, the extent of development on a given plot was regulated by light angles or by setbacks and number of stories in the rest of Mumbai. The resultant ground coverage was one-third and maximum number of stories three. This resulted in FSI of one. As compared to these regulations, FSI as we now know is more flexible and it allows architects the freedom to choose combination of footprint and number of stories. With introduction of lifts and RCC frame structures, this flexibility must have been welcomed by the architects. However, the question what is appropriate FSI number remained elusive to the planners. To decide on the values of FSI for Mumbai, A committee under the chairmanship of then Revenue Minister was constituted in 1962. The committee submitted its report in 1963 and it found its way into the development plan sanctioned in 1967. The plan proposed variable FSIs. In the proposed Bagbear reclamation area, it prescribed FSI of 3.5 and 4.5 for residential and commercial zones respectively. For the planned areas like Kolaba, Marine Drive and Ballard Estate, it prescribed FSI of 2.45. And for areas immediately to the north of Ford, which was largely unplanned and had high density chawls, FSI of 1.66 was assigned, though consumed FSI was around 3.5 to 4. In areas further north, 
that were built under the rule of one-third ground coverage and four stories, an FSI of 1.33 was assigned. This perhaps was the rationale for FSI of 1.33 and 1.66. For the suburbs that were incorporated in the municipal corporation, in 1950 and 1957, the plan assigned a uniform FSI of 1. You just uh, explained the different FSI ratios that came to prevail in Mumbai. But uh, how did FSI become a significant tool for planning the city? Let me begin this story with what I call age of innocence. The development plan preparation was undertaken around 1958. This was the period of second five-year plan. There was a strong belief that planners know what is optimum and that can be prescribed in the plan. There was also an implicit belief that market will follow the prescription of the plan. This reflection in the long-term special plans of the cities as well. Relying on FSI to plan a city was based on a set of innocent beliefs. Firstly. FSI is thought to define density. Higher FSI would increase density and conversely, lower FSI would decrease the density. This would be true or valid only if the built-up area per person is constant. Built-up area per person, however, depends upon the household income and the real estate prices. However, in the age of innocence, market did not matter. Second belief was that redevelopment would occur at FSI lower than what was already consumed and decongestion would take place. This belief was clearly against the provision of Rent Control Act that perpetually protected the tenants. Third belief flew from the obvious uh, neglect of land and real estate markets. Suburbs were growing along the suburban railway lines and areas around railway stations had higher accessibility and consequently higher prices. But this did not reflect in FSI. The belief was that market does not matter. For long, these three cardinal beliefs have remained entrenched in urban planning in India and I don't think we have gone past that till now. Uh, Mr. Fatak, uh, what is the problem with relying on FSI? Do you mean to say that FSI cannot influence or limit the city growth? Certainly, FSI is not a tool to limit city growth. City does not grow because there is higher FSI, nor does it stop growing because FSI is low. This is demonstrated by Mumbai's experience. Let me elaborate. 1967 development plan had designed FSI pattern to cater to 80 lakh population. Though FSI pattern has largely remained unchanged, today Mumbai's population is nearly 130 lakhs. Let me recount what happened after 1967 plan. In 1967 itself, Bombay Metropolitan Regional Planning Board had, was established. The regional plan it prepared in 1973 had intended to limit Mumbai's population to 70 lakhs by 1991. The basic strategy was to develop New Bombay and also bring about decongestion of South Bombay. 
to achieve the latter mmrda in 1977 brought out a policy that required that the development for offices and wholesale establishments and developments of fsi exceeding fsi 1.33 will require prior approval of mmrda this was with an innocent belief that lower fsi will stop further concentration of office employment in south mumbai naturally the market response of increased prices and rents leading to absorbing more employees in the existing space and surreptitious conversion of residential premises to offices was overlooked uh, can you explain this a little further around 1977 first revision of 1967 plan was initiated planners continued to believe that fsi was a tool of managing physical development and were oblivious to market responses in the decades of 1960 and 70 economic and income growth was modest housing finance institutions had not developed people bought new houses from father's provident fund or dowry from father in law majority of new construction was 1 bhk ground plus 4 without lifts there was no pressure for increased fsi in suburbs as enough land was available there was an initial euphoria with urban land ceiling and regulation act ulc enacted in 1976 administrators and planners thought large tracts of land are going to come into public ownership this obviously did not happen in fact the land subject to ceiling went out of the market the prices of land within the ceiling increased developers managed to assemble the land subjected to ceiling government brought out policy of exemptions for promoting construction of small houses but it took 6 years for such a policy to settle supply of land and floor space got squeezed during the mid 80s income began to rise and in mid 80s hdfc and nhb were established to provide housing finance to individual home buyers demand for floor space per dwelling unit too started increasing squeezed supply on one hand and increased demand on the other obviously led to price rise this was to the benefit of developers the population and per capita demand for floor space was rising the plan retained the same fsi regime of 1967 but the land that could have been developed shrunk due to coastal regulations area available for greenfield development also became limited this created severe scarcity of development rights and scarcity led increase in prices planners however remained committed to their beliefs that fsi controls density and population and market will truthfully follow the plan these beliefs were belied and the age of innocence came to an end Uh, would you go to the extent of saying that uh, FSI is not a useful tool at all? Response to this question would be a slight digression from the Mumbai story, but let me articulate it. Though FSI is not a tool of controlling density and population, it can still serve important planning purposes. 
FSI and land use zoning together should ensure that there are adequate development rights in the market for the anticipated growth. This in turn should ensure that there is no scarcity of development rights at any time during the plan period. FSI should help efficient use of land. For this purpose, it should vary with the accessibility and prices of land. In fact, most cities like New York, Singapore and Seoul do it in this fashion. FSI thus planned also helps estimate infrastructure demand and then design projects to meet the demand. Uh, when did the planners decide to use FSI as a fiscal tool? FSI did not become a fiscal tool in a Jiffy. After having the experience of TDR and the incentive FSI, it evolved over a period of about 15 years in three stages. These are TDR, incentive FSI and premium FSI. The first one was initiated by the planners, but the remaining two were initiated by the administrators. Firstly, the TDR or transfer of development rights. Mumbai Development Plan of 1991 had designated lot of sites for public purposes. These were expected to be compulsorily acquired by paying monetary compensation. Poor financial resources were an impediment in achieving this goal. However, the planners saw in rising land prices a potential opportunity. First, conceptually, ownership of land and right to develop were separated. Owners whose land is designated for public purpose was offered an option of surrendering the land free of cost but retain the right to develop which he could use elsewhere or sell it. This was called the transfer of development right or TDR. The areas where the TDR could be used were also defined, mainly the areas of low value and low density. The FSI in the plot receiving TDR was re restrained at 2. Thus, TDR was used as a substitute for monetary compensation. Town Planning Act was amended to recognize TDR as a legitimate compensation for acquisition. Along with TDR, the planner's proposal to treat certain areas as free of FSI such as lifts, staircases and lobbies were turned into paid exemptions. Exemptions were given only after a payment of premium amount. What you are saying is that before FSI became a physical tool, uh, there was an intermediate stage when it was uh, doled out as an incentive? Yes. Let us now turn to FSI as an incentive. Development plans provisions about slums were considered to be inadequate. In 1995, political leadership decided to offer fully built dwelling units to slum dwellers free of cost. This was translated into a policy of incentive FSI for slum rehabilitation in 1997. This policy essentially offered the developers incentive development rights as reward for undertaking slum rehabilitation. The condition for reward was that eligible slum dwellers should be rehabilitated in new dwelling units of 220 square feet each. The reward was by way of development rights equal to the floor space required for rehabilitation of slum dwellers. 
the incentive development rights <clears throat> were to be used at the slum site till the FSI reaches 2.5. Portion of development rights that cannot be consumed at the slum site are available as TDR. This is the, for the first time, the development rights were brought out of thin air as they had no relation with any land. In 1991, similar scheme was introduced for reconstruction of rent-controlled buildings. 50 to 80 percent of the rehabilitation floor space was offered as the incentive with no limit to resulting FSI at the site of reconstruction. The idea of FSI was then seen as a panacea for achieving many development objectives. Civil servants too found this attractive as an off-budget measure. Incentive FSI came to be used for welfare of the poor through slum rehabilitation and chawl renewal, human development through extra FSI for schools and hospitals, promoting tourism by granting extra FSI for star category hotels, promoting economic growth by doubling FSI for buildings to be used for IT and ITES, improving efficiency of road traffic by granting compensatory FSI for creating public parking spaces and improving env environment by offering incentive FSI for relocating Buffalo stables out of Mumbai. With the restricted FSI and limited land supply, development rights had acquired scarcity value. Instead of reducing the scarcity, the planners and administrators thought it was smart to selectively relax the FSI constraints to serve development objectives. This is what I call crony socialism. The so-called off-budget characteristic of these measures was found very attractive by other states and cities, and many cities adopted policies similar to SRA, but without having much success, as they did not have the limitations of land. Apparent success in Mumbai was due to natural constraints of land and extremely restricted FSI. So far, you explained how uh, TDR and incentive FSI were used. Uh, we are here to talk about how FSI became a direct physical tool. Presenting the budget estimates for 2008 and 9. Maharashtra's finance minister proposed to increase the FSI in suburbs of Mumbai from 1 to 1.33 to be on par with that of the island city. However, this extra 0.33 FSI was to attract a premium at market rate and the revenue had to be shared equally between the state government and the BMC. A newspaper article then carried the title is it money space index finally? This probably marked formal moment of change. FSI was no longer a mere physical planning tool, but had rather become a direct fiscal tool. The decision to increase the FSI and charge for it was questioned through a PIL in the Bombay High Court. The main argument was based on the ill effects of increased FSI on density, infrastructure, congestion, etc. 
but the court set aside the question and asked whether there was any provision in the law to charge so called premium there was of course none in the town planning act court therefore struck down the proposal strangely there was already a supreme court judgment clearly laying down that no tax or charge could be levied by assuming an implicit power to charge while granting development permissions in 2011 government retrospectively amended the town planning act to enable regulations imposing fees for extra fsi or deviation from rules this insertion was in the section that enabled formulation of development control regulations appropriateness of inserting fiscal provision in a section meant for regulating physical aspects of development is yet to be questioned uh, mr fatik uh, what followed this uh, legal amendment after the legal amendment the extra fsi was increased from 0.33 to 0.5 in addition a unique regulation was adopted the list of areas exempted from computation of fsi had considerably increased misuse of such exemptions was taking place on a large scale through rent seeking it was therefore decided to curtail this list but as the developer community was used to such exemptions the permissible fsi was raised by 35% as a compensatory fsi but this increased fsi was not confined to the erstwhile exempted categories but allowed to be used in a in a fungible manner it was therefore called compensatory fungible fsi this was of course not free and premium had to be paid this is still in operation at one stage the development charge and various premium fsi were expected to yield revenue in excess of property tax the revenue on account of such measures is of course subject to market fluctuations and mumbai's real estate market has certainly become cyclical uh, the first development plan came into force in 1967 uh the second one came into force in 1994 since then many changes and transformations have occurred in mumbai's economy uh did the revised fsi regime in the new plan respond to these changes the new draft development plan that was prepared in 2015 contained many bold reforms of the fsi regime let me describe the main components of the new paradigm in comparison with the then prevalent paradigm the current paradigm looks at fsi as a tool for controlling density and dense the total population of the city the proposed model conceived fsi as a way of ensuring adequate development rights in the market during the entire plan period of 20 years for anticipated growth prevalent paradigm assumes that low uniform fsi 1.33 in the island city and one in the suburbs as the most optimal the new paradigm envisaged fsi as a tool of enabling optimal use of land the accessibility of land parcels in a city and their prices are not uniform hence it proposed differential fsi particularly incorporating the principles of tod moreover to permit redevelopment 
the FSI was proposed to be more than what was already consumed. Prevalent paradigm considers FSI as an entitlement of the landowner because of the shape and size of the plot. If permissible FSI cannot be consumed, the rules allowed for compromising the setbacks by paying a premium. The new paradigm clearly stated that FSI is not a superior entitlement. FSI could be availed of only if all other conditions are satisfied. Prevalent paradigm uses scarcity of development rights created by the restricting FSI for offering incentives for achieving various development objectives, including that of raising financial resources. New paradigm restricted the use of incentives only to promote inclusive growth. The raising of finances was also planned, but within the overall predefined FSI profile. Unintended outcome of present paradigm was the scarcity of development rights that distorted the market. Such scarcity was sought to be used as a public policy instrument. New paradigm sought to remove scarcity of development rights and avoid distortions of the market. The draft DP had many other reforms in plan formulation as well as in DCRs. However, this plan was cancelled and the old FSI regime with DCRs of 1991 were restored. The facade of low uniform FSI was maintained. We of course know that the actual consumption of FSI is a lot higher because of various incentives and fiscal measures. Why this happened is a separate story to be told later. Uh, thank you, Mr. Fatak, uh, for describing Mumbai's uh, fitful experience with FSI. Uh, before we wrap up, I have uh, two questions to ask. The first one is uh, more fundamental. My question is, uh, is it legal to impose limitations on uh, development rights through measures such as FSI? Even if one argues that the state can regulate development in the name of public good, can it charge or sell the development rights that have accrued uh, on a private property or a privately owned property? Would it contradict the arguments for restricting development in the first place? Owning a parcel of land does not mean owning just the surface of the earth, but also certain rights that go with it. In other words, land is property and there is property in land. According to Lar Act, land includes benefits to arise out of land and things attached to the earth or permanently fastened to anything attached to the earth. In urban areas, the benefits to arise out of land would obviously include the right to build or development rights. This right could be restrained under the police power contained in the Town Planning Act to prevent public nuisance, to ensure health and safety, and to avoid negative externalities. The development rights are essentially owned by the landowner and not by the state. The state policies of assigning or selling development rights amount to selling something which the state doesn't own. You can't sell what you don't own. Though ULC intended to nationalize the urban land, it did not work. By establishing charges for extra FSI, 
state had silently nationalized development rights. Notwithstanding these problems, land value capture is a legitimate concern, but selling FSI as currently practiced is not beyond the legal doubts. However, more detailed discussion of LVC would need a separate story. My last question. Now, many cities across India, inspired by Mumbai, have started adopting FSI as a fiscal tool and they are using it to achieve various planning objectives. It looks even Government of India policies are also encouraging it. Will this approach work for other cities? Is it a good uh, path to take? In a lighter vein, my advice to cities that want to emulate Mumbai is that they should dig a kilometer wide moat all around the city, have only two access bridges and lower the base FSI for Mumbai model to work. Without creating artificial land and development rights scarcity and having high property prices, the fiscal approach to FSI will falter. In other words, FSI or development rights cannot be seen as a currency that government could print when and where required. I would caution the cities trying this approach. Such measures are location and context specific and do not have universal application. Moreover, the cost of market distortion that they could cause would be more than the apparent benefits. Mumbai too is facing problems of such an approach, but will the city reform its FSI regime? The prospects of that happening are rather grim as the system has created widespread vested interest that would protect the status quo. Thank you, Mr. Fatak. Uh, that was yet another engaging and helpful conversation.